So then. If you awaken from this illusion, persistence of vision. Welcome to the Persistence of Vision podcast. I am your substitute host here today, David Fruchter, along with my co-host, W. Joe Hoppy. And we are so pleased to be here substituting for your ordinary, well, that's not really the word, no, but your usual host, LB and Lance Myers. Lance Fever Myers. That... Uh, usually present to you a variety of interviews with authors, book enthusiasts, and uh, uh, friends they owe favors to uh, in the ordinary course of events, talking about their favorite books or books that they've written, presenting great interviews. Joe and I are here today, though, to turn the tables. Mm-hmm. That's right. The Hunter has become yes. The Hunted. We are here today to talk about a book by... Persistence of Vision host and founder LBDO entitled The Goddamn Fool. The Goddamn Fool, which Joe and I have both read uh, intensely. Uh-huh. And have you had any trouble with that title getting it into Walmarts or East Texas or anything? I might have if I had uh, put the book in Walmart or East Texas, possibly, yes. <laughs> well, that's a, isn't that a pretty big market? I'm you? sure it is. I'm sure it is. And if you know how to get it in there, we will do it. Would you change the title to the Gosh Darn Fool? Or? <laughs> I'd probably change it to the Golly G Fool. That's okay. better. That sings. Yeah. That rings. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh. A lot of people tried to talk me out of the title, The Goddamn Fool, but I wouldn't listen. And so now the result is that the book is called The Goddamn Fool, for better or for worse. Could make you the goddamn fool yeah, I, your, I think yourself, that, which we will be talking about. Yes. If, if do you do you have well yeah actually let's make that the 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 next question within the goddamn fool is there a character in particular you think of as the goddamn fool a lot of fools in the book oh yes yeah. a lot of fools in the book I think that I honestly was partially inspired by uh, Dostoevsky's The Idiot when it comes to the title only in the sense that if you read The Idiot the main character is the idiot, Prince Mishkin, but he is actually not an idiot. He just has epilepsy. And so they call him an idiot. And everyone talks about him being an idiot all the time. But of course, he's an extremely intelligent, sensitive, and thoughtful person. <laughs> right. But, 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 he, but also, yeah, there's a certain naivete that, uh, yeah, I think is... Oh, absolutely. ...is, is, is turned on its right. head and, and you realize is, is virtuous by the end. Exactly. And, and so I thought I conceived of harem in that way, not necessarily in the sense of being virtuous and kind-hearted, but in the sense of being... No, neither of those things. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I think he that he is, a... he is an extremely intelligent man. He is a scholar. He, is, he speaks Latin and ancient Greek. You know, he's, he's not dumb, but he is a kind of a fool. You know, he's, he's made a wreck of his life. He has uh, no capacity to interact with other people in a way that doesn't offend them or make them laugh at him or something like that. And, uh, and so he, as it turns out, as the story unfolds, is the perfect person to represent his species. Right. So that, that would have been my argumentative or interpretive answer would have been, uh, 
We are the goddamn fools. It's mankind. Mankind, the reader, the author. Right. It's an inescapable epithet. And everyone in the book gets to be, as you said, the goddamn fool from time to time. There's nobody who comes off as being uh, wise, particularly yeah. throughout, without exception. That's an excellent point. Do you have one of um, the professor's speeches that you'd like to share with us? One of the professor's speeches, yes. Uh, you, you could read to just get the flavor of both the, the character and the writing itself. Sure. And this uh, this character, by the way, uh, in the in the plot of the book, if you haven't read it yet, uh, is a teacher, uh, sort of a Falstaffian Falstaffian character who gets roped in to being a supremely unqualified basketball coach to a small group of supremely unqualified high school basketball players. Yes. It's a bit of a setup. Okay, so this short speech from Harriman, Dr. Coach Harriman, uh, is from the very first practice of the Garrison Liberators high school basketball team. Gentlemen, said Dr. Harriman, who had a booming bass voice when he spoke up, if my standing here before you as the coach of the garrison basketball team seems to any of you to be a farce, he began to cough again, but brought it under control. A grotesque, buffoonish, goddamn farce, then you have better judgment than I give you credit for. The man you see before you, Harriman went on, was at one time as arrogant and entitled as any among you. That arrogance, that hope, that pleasure in life has been ground away. Oh yes, my boys, ground to powder by three fucking marriages, a war, the insolence of my students, the contempt of the faculty, and the goddamn and blasted rise of politics in the academy. He somehow managed to bend over and pick up a basketball from the wooden gym floor. He unconsciously rested the ball on his more than generous riff, midriff as he spoke. I hold now in my hands the token of my last decline. This, this leathern ball. From a, for a moment, the old man seemed unable to go on, but he found his courage. This goddamn bag of air, this Wilson is the last nail. Very uh, nice. We get, a, we get a feel for the guy. Yes. <laughs> it's hard to do that voice, huh? <laughs> yes, it is hard. Well, you did a fine job. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. So I was curious, um, the group of kids that uh, Harriman becomes the, the coach of, that he's ranting to in that, in that speech, uh, they attend a small private school where they're sort of a um, little bit of nerdly uh, outsiders. I got I got the impression in their in their social sphere, and I was wondering if you were part of a group uh, like that when you were in school, because you certainly seem to have the verite. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, I I appreciate the implication, and uh, <laughs> and actually, you're right. Uh, the characters are based on me and two of my friends, so that you have uh, zero, Jackie, and Lefty, all based on. Real friends of mine. And then is the Lefty other, based on Lefty? Yes, Lefty is based on Lefty. <laughs> David Lefty Leibowitz. Jackie is based on Jerome Pollitt. I think if, I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Lefty had a really funny um, Amazon review of the book where he talked about it. it. Just It just feels like it was real or yes, something yes, like that. feel like you really knew the people. <laughs> is Jackie Polish or Polish? That's up to the reader. 
Oh. Tudis, I guess Tudis it depends I. on whether you capitalize the P. No, it is well, no, mostly his last name. name. Then it's Polish. Okay. I will say I originally imagined it as Polish, but then mm-hmm. as I read it, I would often find myself saying Polish. It was obviously spelled the same, and right. I kind of like the Polish also, so I don't really, I don't have a definitive answer there. Okay. Well, you know, just curious. And zero is? Zero is based on me. Okay. And uh, there's a lot in there that is based on real life. It's, it's heavily fictionalized, but, you know, we all went to a real life private school, not a boarding school as in the novel, not in uh, Newburyport, Massachusetts as in the novel, but we went to a school called Horace Mann in the Bronx. And in fact, there's a big plot, plot point, which was that the Horace Mann football team was in fact canceled one year due to lack of student interest. Bravo. And as in the novel... <laughs> I really did go to Lefty and Germ and say, we've got to be the football team because wow. there is, there's no, even though I hate football, I have no interest in sports whatsoever, but it's just too much of a disgrace for a high school to cancel its own football team due to lack of student interest. Unlike in the book, of course, we didn't actually form the football team. That, that did not happen. What was your team name? Uh, the Horace Man Lions. Horace Man Lions, Manicores. Yeah. And of course you had... The cute chicks um, getting crushes on y'all. Yeah, well, you know. Is that, that like in the book, right? I'm the author. I get to decide who the cute <laughs> chicks in the book have crushes on. And, of course, the the lovely young Birdie Love falls in love with my characters. Inexplicably. Inexplicably. And it, it, that well, also that's is... That's the okay. nature of love. It is actually true that uh, when I went to Horace Mann, a very extraordinary and very beautiful girl inexplicably fell in love with me and started, and we dated for the whole time we were there. And wow. it was just as in the book, no one could believe or understand uh, what in the world she was doing with me, why she had liked me. And that's been true to some extent or another of every girl I've ever been with since. <laughs> Shout out to Cheryl. Um, Cheryl. <laughs> You mean Ellie? Ellie. <laughs> Cheryl is buzzing. Never wife, mind. Joe. Never, You're going to yeah. create some We're gonna have real to, tension. That other here. Cheryl. <laughs> I'm sorry. Audio, right. audio editing. Audio editing. Fortunately, is, gonna a, is a thing. Them. We're not going to use it in this case, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we will not be using it. Okay. Uh, I was wanting to ask, as sort of on the topic of how true to life the book is, uh, in another aspect, it seems like one of the points that you're making in the book is how perilously close we are. Uh, at any given time to apocalyptic war. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, much closer than, than people want to admit or deal with. Uh, and here... As, We're talking about this as, as, as we are January early, 5th. Early January of uh, 2020, a historical moment where many people are saying that we are edging perilously close to the brink of uh, a war in the Middle East. And we know from history that in... During the Cold War, there were a number of near misses where la- launches were extremely close to being uh, affected and uh, where sometimes it came down to a single person saying, no, no, uh, let's hold off a few minutes before we launch. And if that person hadn't intervened, then we wouldn't be sitting here. Okay. <laughs> so our listeners are probably wondering how we got from Misfits on a basketball team to Armageddon, Cold War, uh, nuclear 
or with North Korea, et cetera. Um, and I want to get there in just a minute. Uh-huh. But one of the things that oddly gave me a lot of comfort was this um, atti- attitude of, uh, I'm not going to use the right words, you need to help me, mm-hmm. life force within the planets or a planetary, what's going on there? LB. And what was comfortable is that the feeling was it wasn't all in our hands. Not, mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure why that would be comforting. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, the other entities, the other intelligences have more going on and less ego than us. Yes. Well, the, the book is, to a certain extent, based on on Greek mythology, or at least the characters of Greek mythology, right. specifically, in most cases, the gods of Greek mythology. The One of the conceits, and I'm giving a little bit away here, but on the other hand, some people will read the whole book and not pick this up anyway, so what the hell? Oh, no. Uh, no, I mean, not you. <laughs> well, I hope you have more intelligent readers. But yes, <laughs> the, uh, the, the conceit of the book is imagine if the gods are not just the namesakes for the planets like Jupiter and Saturn and so forth, but are actually are the planets that the planets are these super intelligent computer beings. And that one of those supercomputers that is, has a personality and has the ability to process information and take action is Gaia, who is the earth. And so, uh, that these supercomputer gods, uh, are able to exert influence on in, in human society via avatars that they possess and control who are people and then sort of cease to be ordinary people when they're taken possession of by these supercomputer gods. And so, yes, the uh, Gaia is a, is a very angry character. Right. And, and she uh, has reason to be. Yes, we... we we, We've earned that. We see a lot of reasons why she is so angry, and she decides to to take decisive action. Okay. By using the technology of the North Koreans. Yes, to use the technology of the North Koreans to launch a nuclear attack, not to destroy a city, which is about all that they have the technology to do, if that but to create an electromagnetic pulse by detonating a hydrogen bomb in outer space above the United States, an electromagnetic pulse, which is a uh, not hugely well understood uh, means of attacking someone that disables to some degree or another the electricity and the electrical apparatus of a society. So we see the, the people of the United States plunge suddenly into darkness. And there's also, can we do giveaways or can we? Yeah. Well, so one of the brilliant things, which I love it when a book is ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And so they determine that the problem was caused by a, you know, one in a million year sunspot. Mm-hmm. And, and so nobody's being blamed, which, which. At first, you believe, well, that's the great politic thing to do. If you say, oh, no, North Korea made this happen, it would be nothing but bad. Right. But then we find out, well, we'll let that be ambiguous for the moment. But now can you tell us, 
how we get from misfits on a basketball team to this huge uh, solar system-wide Greek mythological event. Sure. I mean, the, the characters uh, in this little town of Newburyport, which is a real town, and this school of Garrison Academy, which is not a real school. But Garrison was a real guy. Right? But Garrison was a real guy. Uh, he was a abolitionist, one of the most radical of his time and one of the most effective. Uh, these people are introduced before the event takes place, the attack. Well... There's that intro that really upset me as a reader at the beginning. Uh-huh. And that intro ends with something about being judged. So our chapter one is called Theogony, which comes from Hesiod. It means birth of the gods. And the last sentence, page seven, first chapter in Theogony is, should I let you, lo- oh, no, we'll back up a minute. For last paragraph. The story concerns itself with a lot of marginalia that barely signifies. A parade of nonsense plus one thing that really does matter. A question that I had to ask to myself, which happens to be the only question worth asking, should I let you live and why? Yes. And then the next chapter, we leave that behind for quite a while. Yes. And that had me wondering, although I will say there were hints and pieces that it was going to get picked up, and then it got dropped again. So you, 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 had, me, you had me reading even just for that, along with the interesting characters. So what yes. do you have to say about that? Well, I thought that the fact that things were going to take such a dramatic turn might be uh, hinted at at the beginning. So I took a little flash forward to the day of the attack and appended it to the beginning of the book, just as an indication to to readers and to potential readers who might just be taking a look to say, okay, this book is going to deal with a lot of characters who are not famous, not world historical figures, and it's going to deal with their ordinary lives, uh, hopefully in a funny way, in an interesting way. But, but believe me, there's something going on in the background that that is of a, on a larger scale and maybe of interest to people who wouldn't be interested in, say, a book about high school basketball. Oh, that leaves me a couple big questions. And I'm, I'll relinquish to you in just a minute, David, because <laughs> but, but this is driving me nuts. So um, one thing is Jackie starts to see the way the world works through the computers as metaphor. Well, Lefty does, yes. I'm sorry, Lefty does. And that's a really cool moment where, where you think he's going to unlock it. Mm-hmm. And, and I love that. But then back to what this book is about. So your worldview now, and, and I do seriously find it strangely comforting because there's there's an implication of logic and purpose. We're talking in this book about some some very malevolent uh, forces outside of human control, as well as some more benevolent ones. But the 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 idea that the cosmos has a structure and a purpose that that there is intelligence at work, uh, that there's a plan or something going on beyond 
our own human foibles and mistakes uh, could be viewed as comforting. Yeah, well, there's... Or terrifying. Or terrifying, well, yes. There's a struggle for balance. Well, the, what I think of when I, when I hear that uh, uh, depiction of the cosmos is that if entities of that sort of level of power and organization actually exist, there's absolutely no way any human being could actually ever comprehend their motivations. Mm. Not, we would not be operating at the right scale to do that. And so that's why the... Uh, I'm so happy to not believe in the existence of those, <laughs> like, like, like I'm, I find, I find um, stark emptiness of the, of the laws of physics much more comforting. Yes. Well, as I say in the book, I mean, that's, that's another little conceit of the book, is that there are these gods, uh, supercomputers, planet-sized supercomputers that are planets, uh, but they're not very bright. And this also harks back to Greek mythology, where a particular we see in the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. Well, in the Odyssey, the gods are fairly uh, wise, but in the Iliad, they're they're rather, f no, is it the other way around? No, well, both, you, can, you could definitely argue both. I would argue that they're pretty much the same. Yeah. I think there's a consistency within the gods, but I think they're much more vainglorious and, and almost comic in the Iliad. Yes. Like yeah, I Ares think that's getting right. getting punched in the nose. Yeah. And, and the, <laughs> like the episode that we talked about in the episode of the Persistence of Vision podcast that I was on. Yes. Uh, where the goddesses, the chief goddesses are squabbling over a golden apple just because right. it has written Paris, on it yeah. to the prettiest yes. one yes. and the entire Trojan War. Results. Yes, exactly. So you have these gods... And, and the, there is even a sci-fi kind of explanation for why they're not that smart, which is in my book and why they resemble the Greek gods in that respect. And that is that the planets are so large that they can only think very, very slowly. You know, a there's a reason why a microchip is very, very tiny. It's so that these processes can take place like, very quickly. The physical, the yeah, the physical barriers that these electrons are crossing are, are minute, whereas a planet like Jupiter is so incredibly huge that if one part of the brain wants to talk to another, it's going to take a matter of, of many seconds or even minutes to, to just send one signal one way. That's pretty cool. Well, you know what we say in the humanities about the Greeks and their gods is when the gods are more human, the humans are more godlike. That's right. That's I, right. I had to throw that one in. So, um, yeah, I love the worldview. Let's get back to style. I'm going to ask you to read my favorite chapter, um, which I thought was really gorgeous. And it goes, it, it comes kind of out of the blue. And it's chapter 10. It's called Full Fathom 5, which is an allusion to Shakespeare's The Tempest. Um, I should have out underlined it, but you've got kind of, uh, more than one. Are you talking allusions about here. the entire chapter? Well, maybe not the entire chapter. It's a page and a half. but um, Oh, the whole chapter is very, very short. Yes. So it's, it's okay. a gorgeous chapter. Well, thank you. <laughs> You'll be getting your tip after the yes. recording. I'm a stooge. Okay. Uh, Full Fathom 5, featuring the characters Kim Jigu, Ryugun, and subordinates. 
Major Kim Jigu's guilt, known to everyone, obviated any trial. Her execution was highly informal. She was forced to her knees by one of her subordinates, and another subordinate shot her behind the temple. So much for her. Several soldiers carried her to the surface, dragged her out beyond the razor wire fence, and left her on the cold, flat ground. And there she would have remained if not for Ryu Gun, a corporal in the rocket force, who was in love with Jigu. I love this little detail, by the way. I'm interjecting the, the North Korean missile command uh, apparatus. The whole organization is actually called the Rocket Force. Rocket Force, which sounds a lot like Space Force now that yeah. it, which we have. Yeah. He put her in a jeep and drove her to Heaven Lake, mm. which turned out to be frozen. He spent about 10 minutes trying to hack through the ice with his entrenching tool, but he and his nerve failed. He was absent without leave. So he left her on the ice, stripped her to the nude so that she'd be more difficult for a passing tourist to identify. As it turned out, Ryu had weakened the ice enough that she broke through the next day. Down into the lake, she sank, then bobbed up to the surface, up against the bottom of the ice. She floated in the current. The rains had been heavy that month, and there was a strong pull to the Arabdai River, which over the next weeks carried her into China, and then to a series of other rivers and back to North Korea, where she at last was washed up ashore at the top of a steep bluff by the Sea of Japan. There she lay in a depression in the high bluff, her body preserved by the near-frozen waters. And when the rain came, the depression became a pool, and from a pool to a lake and then a river that became a waterfall. Jigu drifted with it over the high cliff and plunged deep into the sea. And there, below the eddies and sparkling waves, Kim Jigu floated upright, as though standing, with her head up and her eyes wide open. The sunshine stabbed through the surface to illuminate her still lovely nudity. One by one, tiny red and orange fish swam to her and kissed her body, remaining there with their little mouths locked to her skin. One by one, they schooled around and attached themselves, each taking a place where there was still bare skin until no room remained, and Kim Jigu suffered a sea change and became a white incandescent spirit glowing with the kisses of red and orange fishes. Or fish. Oh, yeah. yeah. How long did it take you to do that? Did they have multiple drafts? Do you remember writing No, that? no, no. That came... That, that was... Uh, was a gift just from came the out. Gods. Yeah, yeah. It was a vision I had, a vision of her uh, floating there upright mm -hmm. with the fishes all over her. I don't know where That's it came beautiful. from. Thank you. That sort of goes to answer a question that I have written down here, which is Have you also felt a God speaking through you? I have not felt a God speaking through me. Uh, I think when I, was a, when I was a little kid, I did have some fantasies of, of maybe being kind of like a medium and speaking for something that wasn't necessarily human. So I guess I have, I take it back. Uh, but but that, it was when I was very little. you described of writing that chapter is one I think a lot of writers, poets mm -hmm. uh, especially perhaps have, have spoken of, of feeling uh, inspiration coming through them from... And this is a hopeful book with an apocalypse in it. But you end up defending mankind as the goddamn fool. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could read us Harriman's speech on that. Where's the name Harriman come from? Harriman came from a 
Google search for last names. Uh, I, <laughs> I basically put it, fed in the kind of background that I saw him having. He's very kind of a waspy guy who teaches at a prep school. And so I thought of it like I wanted something like a waspy name for him. And, uh, and there it was just in a list. And I just thought, oh, I like you, that. Harriman. You, you prostituted yourself before the Oracle of Our Times and was exactly. delivered. Exactly. And it was delivered unto me. <laughs> I always I see him as almost some great waspy accomplished uncle of Ignatius Riley. Yes. Oh, yeah. I well, mean, they have you. a little bit of the same physicality. Yes, they're both very fat. <laughs> well, well, it's not just <laughs> corpulence. Are you a fan of Confederacy? I am a, con a fan okay. of that book. I like that book very much. All right, so Kim Jigu is the Korean woman who is an avatar of which planet? Gaia. Gaia. The Earth. So the Earth has come up with Kim Jigu to defend her, and they're at a bar... That serves 14-year-olds <laughs> yes. at the end. But um, our man Harriman um, comes up with a defense of basically all mankind. And it's a beautiful moment. And uh, maybe you'd read that for us. I'd be delighted. Thank you. Uh, I will start with her accusation, actually. Uh, and then his response will be his defense. Kim Jigu looked over at me. Her face was... Weary, it was later than we thought. This man is too smart by a half, she said, too smart to stay in his niche. Unconcerned, mocking, violent, a despoiler of worlds, an exterminator of species, a killer of his fellows, a killer of children, a rapist, weak, frightened, shallow bungler who destroys what he touches and casts everything into ruins. Harriman seemed to have lost his thread. I was surprised to see him slump down in the booth and stare under the table. The dog looked up at Harriman with gravity. Yes, said Harriman, but man is unique and precious, alone capable of irony, rationality, explanation, artistry, and universal observation. And if all this is not enough, there remains the example of Garrison. Where you teach, said Jigu. Yes, said the old man, clearing his throat, and a noble institution it is, but I refer to the man, William Lloyd Garrison, that risable gentleman of the 19th century. For he was a man, take him for all in all, as human as anyone, weak, frail, doomed, and never knowing when he was licked. He was an activist of all things, which means a nuisance to everyone, loved by none. Yes, and blind to the facts, blind to his own chances, quixotic, petulant, gently inclined to treason, strongly driven in calumny, peevish, bilious, and a laughingstock. In those respects, he epitomized the human race. But in one more respect, too, he sought after great things. He fought against slavery at a time when it was nearly unheard of, with an uncompromising determination and even violent obduracy. He fought for the equality of women, which, when even his fellow abolitionists opposed so far-fetched a notion, he did not equivocate, he did not extenuate, he was in earnest, he was hated, he was a fool for an idea, and he was a man. I dare say he and his legacy are the reason why this discussion should be taking place in the town of his birth. I should therefore suggest, Harrison, Harriman went on, and you will agree that like Garrison, man is a fool. Somewhat past his prime, somewhat fat, which is no sin, a touched lame, a touched sick, there were tears on his cheeks now, a poor scholar, a poor coach, a lonesome rascal, a fool who wanted to be a hero and wound up trapped in his own vices, a fool bound by gravity, 
who nevertheless let his mind range through the heavens, a man who tried to leave, lead, but was led and was alone. And this is my defense, my catechism. This ember in the darkness, this man who fails while striving greatly, is great not because, not despite, but because he is lost. He inquires because he knows so little. He's wise because he's a goddamn fool. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. So do you believe that? I do believe it. Now that All you right. mention it, I, I kind of do. Uh, I think that uh, there's one thing that's true in terms of the writing and the style of the book, as well as through the ideas behind it, is every character, as we discussed at the very beginning of this talk, uh, is a bit of a fool. Every character is is risable, as he says of Garrison. Uh, every character is ridiculous. Uh, and yet I have completely failed as a writer. If we don't love these characters, if we don't hope for the best for them. And, and I think that that's true of the human race. That's how I feel about the human race. The human race is ridiculous, uh, is dangerous, destructive, uh, blind and foolish. And yet I love the human race and, uh, you're, you're rooting for us. I, yeah. I'm rooting we love for the you human too. Race. LD. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And you so, know, in, in the, in the, course of the plot of the book the one of the main areas of redemption uh, for me with respect to how i felt about people as i went along reading it was how in the aftermath of the detonation of this emp device that you were talking about earlier and the sort of breakdown of uh, municipal infrastructure in this town uh with some with some pitfalls and some mistakes and some egoism despite all that there is um, a real sense of community coming together to uh, save one another in the face of disaster, in the face of catastrophe. And to me, that also felt quite uh, redemptive on a social level more than an individual level, that together we can, we can figure some things out. Mm-hmm. You know, we can be there for each other at least. Um, I think that's right. I think that's right, don't you? So would you urge your listeners to go out and be goddamn fools? Uh, I don't know if we have a choice, any of us. <laughs> <laughs> I think that... And, you know, the, ter- the term is, is well chosen. You know, it's not, it's not just an epithet, goddamn right. fool. It's, you know, the, this book is about the gods, and they have damned us, in, in the, especially in the course of the story, they damn us, uh, and they damn Harriman, and... Uh, and so the question, the ultimate question that you would ask as a reader, as, as you start this book and, and may or may not feel has been answered, is why do I care about the story of a goddamn fool? Mm. Well, if you just listened to what LB said and you still have a question... I'm saddened for you. <laughs> <laughs> but just go to the book. Just yeah, give it just a, go to the book. Just give it a, just give it a reread. Read, read the book. And, uh, so uh, do you have other book projects in mind for the, the future? Are you in the middle of working on? I'm uh, not. Uh, my big project right now is, uh, and I'm excited to announce this here, uh, an audiobook version uh, that will be read by an actress here in town called Webb Jerome, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna knock this audiobook out and put it out there. 
That's right. so interesting to me that you chose a woman to be the narrator, given that the the character of the narrator is male and most of the characters in the book are male. Why did you go with uh, an actress? Well, she just seemed like a good choice, and she she has a great voice. She's uh, she's a very literate person. We just had her on the previous episode, uh, which hasn't been released yet. Uh, what, talking, book, what book was talking about talking? the Song of Ice and Fire books, actually. Oh, yeah. George R.R. R. Martin. And, uh, and also, uh, you know, even though I think you're right that numerically most of the characters are men, I think that three of the most important characters, maybe four of the most important characters are women. And uh, Which would be, let's see, the uh, school administrator. Yes. The Dr. mayor's Ms. wife. Uh, Birdie. And Gaia. And, and, and yeah, and the North Korean officer. Yeah. So those are, those are so critical and so interesting to me. And in some ways at the heart of the book that I thought it would be just as well. And, uh, lastly about this book, uh, the, the overall, the, all the, all the, the work that you put into it, all the work you had to discard, all the rejection you pushed through before deciding to get it out there on your own. Was it worth it, LB? <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Worth it? Yes. Yeah, well, I think that's a yeah. good question. <laughs> do you well, have I, to ask? I, I think do. What well, makes what, what it? Would, <laughs> what would it make it not worth it? What could possibly undercut this? Well, I, I don't know. Like, like it, I guess it would depend on... Um, whether you had experienced feelings of be of reward, he wrote a book. This in reward itself. Here's his name on a book, and we're talking about it. And he wrote those beautiful passages well, we so just read. What, clearly, what more do you want? Clearly, David? all your labor was worth it for Joe. Uh, yes, Joe seems. And I would say, I would say it was worth it for me too. I barely had to lift a finger, and I was very entertained. But for you. And, and maybe this is maybe this is a message out there for people who are considering undertaking a similar kind if of project. If you've got to ask, I think. That, well, I'll tell you honestly. That's a. I think it's a good question, and the the answer really has been it has been yes, but I wasn't sure. In fact, in the weeks prior to publishing this, I wrote and uh, Lance and said, "Do you think I should cancel this? Oh no! Is this is this worth putting out? Is this?" And I wasn't sure. I mean, I think I would say the reception, and it makes sense, has been much better since I put it out than it was in the test readings. And uh, and that makes sense because I was asking them to give me negative feedback so I can improve it. Um, and but I am I am not one of those people who who is uh, able to be indifferent to other people's views. You know, some people are. I think uh, some artists in particular. Uh, I'm not like that. I if people hadn't received it well, I don't know. I, I think it would still have been worth it because it's it's a journey as well as a destination to be sure. And I'll tell you, I, I do love writing a book. Uh, this, is, this is a little tangential, but writing a book is a wonderful experience, I think. And the thing that's wonderful, even though it's hard, sweaty work and it's fraught with doubts, um, one thing I love about it is that you suddenly turn into this machine for processing everything that you're learning, everything you're experiencing, and suddenly it all has a purpose because it's all potentially going to go into the book in some way or another. And that is such a, a, 
I think of it like a switchboard. Your brain becomes like a lit up switchboard when you're doing this because you're, you may just be going to the grocery store. You may just be looking around, but you see something and you think, aha, that could go in the book. Mm -hmm. And it's a wonderful way to go through life. And so I, I recommend it extremely to anyone. Bravo. That's fantastic. That reminds me of a sort of a, a, a Buddhist perspective, uh, sort of captured by the aphorism, within you there's one that watches all the others. Honor that one. Yes. And so that kind of second order perspective as you, as you go through life, that kind of uh, critical distance from your experience, um, I can see how that is just a very enjoyable way to walk around your day. It is wonderful. I couldn't recommend it highly enough, and I think it's probably true of other uh, types of creative work as well. Elementary teach, elementary school teachers. Yeah, absolutely. Parents, That's right. If they're paying attention, if they have time. Yes. Right, David. Yeah. Well, having when, been bo having when I'm both, when I'm at my best. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and then and then of course also. Uh, it's the situation, parenting the situation where when you let that slip and you become a reactive individual, Ooh, it's yeah. the most terrible thing to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think it may be time, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> yeah. for the lightning round. Oh, yes. Okay. What's the lightning round? Remind me. Uh, well, the lightning round uh, is at the end of most, if not every episode of the POV podcast where there's just a few, there's a small handful of questions that they ask every guest. And I think I can remember at least a few of them. Yes, and I'm virtually, wow. like virtually every guest, I am unprepared for the lightning round. So Fantastic. Did you expect that we would throw the lightning round at you? I, no, I absolutely did. But I didn't, ah. didn't consciously think, oh, yeah, I've got to do the lightning round. I should know what I'm talking about. LB, has a book ever changed you? Yes. What was that book? Uh, the book was called... Men, how to make it 365 days a year. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I don't think that book changed me. Uh, I think a book that changed me, gosh. Uh, I'm going to answer the way everyone else does and say that so many books have changed me. Um, you were I, never the same. Yeah, you're never the same after you read a book, right? But uh, gosh, uh, one book that we've discussed on the show that was very influential to me for a while was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. All right. Uh, that, that book opened up some vistas of what was possible in this world and, uh, <laughs> and how a life could be lived if you were willing to take on extreme emotional and psychological risks, not to mention legal risks. <laughs> uh, and so that, that's one that leaps to mind, yes. That's fantastic. And so did, did you ever have um, similar drug-fueled Vondriar? I've never been that into drugs, but I did emulate the author Hunter Thompson in some other ways. Like, for example, I drove from Los Angeles to Las Vegas in a convertible, big red convertible car. Awesome. Uh, when I was 18 and too young oh. to gamble or enter the casinos. And when we got there, my friend and I uh, glued off snippets of our hair that we'd cut off with the scissors and made mustaches so that, <laughs> in order to try and fool these casino operators. And I'm <laughs> going to tell you right now, it worked. Nice. Bravo. They were happy to take our money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, have, uh, has a book ever made you cry, LB? Oh, many books have made me cry. Uh, one, of the, one of the great uh, tearjerker sessions of my reading life was when I was probably in ninth grade. Uh, I was reading 
a book that had been assigned, which was uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm. And while I was listening to it, as, as students might do, I was listening to music. So I was listening to Wild Horses by the Rolling Stones. Mm. And there was a very moving passage in the book where Scout is... Uh, Scout is sort of confronting just how hateful people can be. And yet she has a very sweet, uh, very different attitude than the people she's she's watching. And they're playing the Rolling Stones' Wild Horses, which is a very, very emotional song. And I just, the waterworks turned on. Oh, that's a beautiful moment. Yes. Thank you for confessing that. No, I confess. <laughs> well, thank you, gentlemen, so much for coming oh, on the Glorious pleasure, taking LB. it over. So fun. Making yeah. it your own. Uh, everyone at home, please Read go to pov-publishing.com where you can find The Goddamn Fool as well as the Lance Myers masterpieces, Why So Much and Clash of the Christmas Clones. That's pov-publishing.com. Do you gentlemen have anything to promote? No. Just your own geniuses. Okay. <laughs> I thank my... Uh, interlocutors W. Joe Hoppy and David Moses Fruchter for their excellence. And I thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening. You guys, you guys can sign it off. All right. Thanks, everybody. And thanks, LB, for having us on the show. Keep up the good work. That's right.